0: Welcome to CTL Connection's Short Bites, a series of interviews with senior engineering leaders. I'm your host, Peter Bell. The future's here, it's just not evenly distributed. At CTL Connection, we try to solve that by identifying, curating, and distributing the latest tools and techniques for more effectively building and managing an engineering team. Join our community at CTLConnection.com. I'd like to take a moment to thank our partners. Code Climate is our global sponsor. Co-Climate Velocity helps CTOs, VPEs, and directors at companies like Slack, Gusto, and Pizza Hut align initiatives with strategic priorities, accelerate software delivery, and drive continuous improvement. I'd also like to thank Amazon Web Services and Carrot, our sustaining partners. I'd also like to take a moment to introduce our Short bites partner, CloudZero. You're spending a ton of money on the cloud, so shouldn't you know exactly what you're spending it on? CloudZero will help you organize and understand your cloud spend better than anyone else out there, You'll get visibility without the typical pitfalls of legacy cloud cost management tools like endless tagging or clunky Kubernetes support. With Cloud Zero, you can optimize your unit economics, decentralize cost intelligence to engineering, and create a shared language between finance and technical teams. You'll be able to answer questions like, who are my most expensive customers? How much does this specific feature cost our business? What is the cost impact of re-architecting this application? Join companies like Drift, Rapid7, and SeatGeek by visiting cloudzero.com slash connection to get started. Again, please visit cloudzero.com slash connection to get started today. Today, I'm speaking with Stephen Gaffney, president of the Stephen Gaffney Company, who's an expert in creating consistently high-achieving teams. Stephen, thanks for taking the time to talk today. Thanks for having me on. Uh, so... Unlike some of our other guests, we often uh, have guests who are engineering leaders, perhaps who our audience know or have heard of. Uh, I know that you have quite a following, uh, but for anyone who doesn't know about you, would you mind just taking a moment to give a little bit of background in terms of what you do?
1: So our specialty, my company's specialty, and in particular my specialty, is about creating consistently high-achieving teams. There's a reason why I'm not using high-performing teams, which we can talk about, but I cut across all different industries from the defense, to the national security, to the mining industry, to the hospitality, to the banking, and all different types. So I work with everything from him, Amazon, to Lockheed Martin, to a lot of the national security a- agencies and whatnot, to the gold mining, go um, and uh, and just, you know, uh, Bear Gold is another client of ours. So we just cut across Capital One. So I just do a lot of different industries. And most of my audience is scientists, engineers, and technical <laughs> folks. So I think we hopefully can help a lot of folks today.
0: That's great. So I I got to, you set one thing up. I got to ask, you say consistently high achieving versus consistently high performing teams. What's the difference and why does that matter?
1: Sure. Because high performing teams, I think is a little bit outdated and it's actually not really what ultimately people want. And here's what I mean by that. The word performing could be confused with hard work rather than what we're judged by is achievement producing results. So I put in the word achieving. And then the other thing that's missing is how to do this consistently. Because we've all been on teams that are working pretty well and could actually produce results. But it's kind of up and down. The idea is how to make it consistently high achieving teams. So we actually even now have the registered trademark for it because we found it so valuable and important for our clients. But the key takeaway is whether whatever the terminology is to make sure that whatever you're doing, the team is set up to achieve in a very consistent
0: way. So I guess my first question is, how do you even know if your team is, is high achieving?
1: Great question. So there's 12 essential elements of a consistently high achieving team. One of them is to know your North Star, PGS. And PGS stands for Purpose, Goals, and Strategy. And the this may sound kind of obvious, but many teams are not really running well because the truth is, People are under a different purpose of the team, and it's not crystal clear what the goals are that should pull us all together. Let me give you an example. On the purpose front, just think about how often you might have left a meeting and thought, what was the purpose of the meeting? And how this plays into executive leadership teams, which I do a lot of work with is often what's happening is people are misjudging the purpose of the team. So an example of this is when you're on a team, an executive team, or any team, and people are just briefing out what's happening. If you think about it, the best use of the team is to have debate and discussion. So if we're just reporting out what we're doing, it's losing the purpose and the intention of having a team meeting anyway. That's one aspect. The other thing is I've seen a lot where the reason why people aren't working together as a team is because they're judged on individual performance or their own area of performance of which they're held accountable for. Although that's important, are there unifying goals that pull the team together and are we holding them accountable? So in other words, we want two types of accountability, individual accountability and collective accountability. That magic together, formulates a fantastic team
0: how do you think about balancing the individual with collective responsibility because as you as you point out if you just focus on individual accountability the challenge is no i'm not going to mentor you i'm not going to help with your code review because i got to go ship my features uh how do you how do you balance those two demands
1: Well, one of the biggest problems in all relationships and all teams and all organizations, and if everybody forgets about what we've talked about and they forget about what we're about to talk about, this is the most important thing. The biggest problem is not what people say. It's actually what they don't say to each other. It's lack of honest communication, but not the truth or lies. It's really where we think, why didn't they just say so? And so what happens is in teams and in organizations, we're not getting this unsaid said. So uh, I'll give you an example. I was brought in to work with an organization and the CEO said, oh, we're a one company and one organization. But each leader of a particular business line was judged by, their, by that business line's results. And so what was not getting said is I got the idea of working as one, but you're holding me and my area accountable to what we do. So Yes, I want to help out my fellow worker, right, or my peers and for the good of the company. But if you're holding me accountable to what we're doing in our area, what's the incentive to work together? And it's not about money incentive. It's just about how we're being judged. And so what very often happens is these issues are lurking in organizations and teams, but we don't get the unsaid said. And if we do, we can get a lot of this result. So to finish off with that example, we got the unsaid said. And the CEO realized, wait a minute, I'm saying one thing, but our actions, behavior, and what we're judging people is something else. Once the unsaid was getting said, they were able to correct that. And the team was able to, and the company was able to work together.
0: So that makes perfect sense. How do you, in in a team, how do you get the unsaid said? What are some patterns or approaches to, to facilitate that kind of discussion?
1: There are many, many strategies. It's an excellent question, and I would so uh, let's just go through as many as we can. But the first one I want to make sure everybody knows is to create that emotional safety. So what I mean emotionally safety, and people are talking about the psychological safety. This is what yeah, often people that's talk the term
0: about. we often hear. Yeah,
1: and I think it's garbage. <laughs> Probably just offended some people, but let me just explain <laughs> why I say it. My and I've been at this for over twenty five years, and our specialty, how we got launched, was this honest communication. We can understand in our, like the way we're thinking psychologically, it's safe that nothing bad is going to happen. But that's not really what's going to make us share. It's if we feel safe to share. So that's why I like to use emotional safety to drive home that point. Let me give you an example of how this happens to all of us in our life where it's not safe. Have you ever met somebody who says, you know, uh, uh, Peter, you can say anything to me. I, I, I want to hear it. You can say anything. I, I love feedback. And so you give them feedback that they don't like and they flip out, they get upset. And you're thinking to yourself, oh, I'm not going there again. In fact, they might not even pick it up. They might say, so Peter, you got any more feedback? And you're like, oh, I'm not going there. No. (laughs) It's it's interesting how we train and condition people on how to treat us. And many people train and condition that although we say it's okay to share, by our reaction, it makes others feel emotionally unsafe So therefore, they don't share. And so there's a lot of behaviors that can happen. And let me give you a recent example. I was brought in to work with a team and there was some people that didn't feel safe. And the reason why is because the leader of that team had not done a great job of managing behavior. And specifically, they had had people on the team when others shared certain things, others would have their eyes roll like that and then look away. And so it created an environment where people did not feel comfortable to share sometimes i've seen people get defensive and sometimes people just don't do anything with the feedback but creating emotional safety is critical to the development of getting the unsaid said
0: so to dig into the emotional safety a little bit more uh, i think i feel like there are there are almost two sides to this one is you've got to stop shutting down emotional safety, which is, you know, manage the defensiveness or or pushback or, you know, in the most extreme cases, retaliation against somebody, you know, saying something and, and being honest. But I feel like there's also another component in terms of positively engaging people in a way that makes them feel more emotionally safe. Do you think there are like exercises, approaches or tools that help you to actually build a shared sense of emotional safety in your team? Well, there's a
1: lot of things. So um, one of the 12 essentials is how to get everyone to share to get the unsaid said. Everyone shares that these are the essential elements of a consistently high achieving team. And what you're talking about is to positively create that environment. And this deals with another strategy, which fits in really well, and that's rewarding honesty. That's the encouragement of it. So what's the difference between emotional safety and rewarding honesty? Well, I've been brought into teams where people say, I feel safe to bring things up and I have brought things up. And then they say, well, then why aren't people sharing? Because then they'll say, but it's a waste of time to share because nothing changes. We have brought up things and I've seen no movement. In other words, there's been no reward, no payoff for people to speak their mind. This is why I work with leaders that they've got to do an excellent job of doing something with the feedback. Here's an easy example. Have um, and and I'm sure a lot of folks have probably experienced this, where there's employee surveys and you fill it out, but it takes months to get that feedback. And by the time the feedback is given, it's, be, it's been a long time and not anything is really done with it. And so I've worked with organizations where we are asking people, you've got to do something with this. So the positive angle is really about rewarding the honesty. You know, just think about it, even in a personal relationship, right? And just in life, you know, um, in our families and whatnot, um, you see a lot of people just don't bring up stuff because they either don't feel safe or what's the point? So we have to really do something. And when we're talking about a technical and engineering environment, it's critical because engineers are brilliant. They create processes and procedures and, and make the company so great. But the key is creating that environment where people can speak up and disagree. Because debate is good. All the engineers out there know what I'm talking about is, you know, left to our own devices, we can produce some good stuff. But through um, debate and discussion, we can create a much better product and a much better service by working together. But that involves debate, which involves creating an emotional safe environment and then rewarding honesty.
0: And I think that makes a lot of sense because one of the things that, that people started to lose when they started working remotely was... One of the challenges is to create that sense that it's okay to disagree with people because you you feel connected and supported enough that it, it's not going to be the end of the relationship. You're just saying, "Hey, Samantha, are you sh-, you know, have you have you thought through these things? Are you sure? Like, how's that really going to work when we try to scale it? Um, have you noticed that your work has changed uh, over the last couple of years with the pandemic? Now that more people are working from home and you get less of this stuff for free by just being." at the the office cooler and having lunch together every day.
1: Well, here's the key. There's many obviously differences, but here's a big headline. We have to be more deliberate with our communication. If you think about it, if we're all working in an office, we wanna have a certain kind of rhythm, but if we know we're gonna see each other, although it may not be we still have to schedule or we might miss each other, we're gonna run into each other. But we lack that spontaneity and what and spontaneous innovation, the kind of water cooler. Or as a client of mine said, you know, we just miss the discussion, like even walking out the building and, oh, hey, how you doing? And then that leads to a conversation. And then suddenly something great has developed. So in a virtual world, we have to be deliberate. And so we have to have that communication business rhythm that is critical, which also means making sure that um, people are participating, and here's a big one, calling on people. Why in the world would we have a meeting and allow some people to not speak up? If that's the case, why are they even attending the meeting? And if we need them in the meeting, we should want to hear their opinions. And sometimes people are afraid to call on people because, well, if they had something to say, I want, you know, they would say it. But I've experienced very quiet people who, when you call on them, they first may be caught off guard. But then if you create that emotional safety and rewarding honesty, they, they have brilliant stuff to share. So I think in a virtual environment, there's many, many differences, but we have to be deliberate. The other is the use of the camera, right? I know, hopefully we're way past this now, but you know, I, I've been brought in and did virtual sessions where I was the first person that required people to be on camera. And people are like, well, you know, I don't want to make people feel like they have to be on camera. And so you know what was my response on that? Would you ever have a meeting before COVID? Would you ever have a meeting and allow people to wear a bag over their head? Would you ever like, it could be okay. And they, so of course that's not okay. So why would it be okay to attend a meeting and go dark, you know, and not have people see each other? Because we read a lot from facial expressions and whatnot. So all of this stuff, and we can go into it more and many strategies, but these are some of the bare essentials, especially in a virtual environment.
0: Yeah, I'd love to dig into it maybe a little more. What are some other patterns that you'd recommend, or processes, systems, or ideas you mentioned specifically? Calling on everyone in a meeting to make sure they engage, having the cameras on. Are there other things you think people can do in a virtual environment to make sure that everyone is engaged and, and to set itself up for high achieving?
1: Well, so the thing is, what we need to do is look at what's always worked and translate it into a virtual world. So. Um, there's, uh, again, going to these kind of 12 essential elements of a consistently high achieving team. and So, and I talked about this in a moment, but now I want to kind of expand on this. Um, Having a consistent communication business rhythm. So, there are four types of meetings we want to have. And in a virtual environment, we have to be extremely deliberate to make this happen. The first type of meeting we should all have when we're leading people is one-on-ones, right? That sounds obvious, but it's not just, you know, hey, tell me what you're up to. One-on-one should be coaching sessions. So great leaders are great coaches. It shouldn't just be, hey, tell me what you're doing, any problems, let's kind of work this through. We should also be mentoring and coaching so people feel like they're growing. So one-on-ones. The second is, and this may surprise some people, but I think it's critical, is a daily huddle. A daily headline huddle is what I call it. And we're People are um, connecting on a daily basis. And I've done this with um, organizations that there are thousands of people and all the executives get together every day for 15 minutes. And what it is, is with a team, it's a way to kind of, the same idea is like you turn on the evening news, you hear what's going on and it should answer two questions. The two questions are, what do others need to know? And what do I need help with? And here's why that's important. Because sometimes when people are by themselves or in their own area, they're not thinking how it should connect with other areas. So a daily huddle, the next is a weekly, and that's kind of obvious. Um, But the other one is a strategic future meeting. A strategic future meeting is a type of meeting where we're looking at the future and thinking strategically. Some of my clients complain, well, people don't think strategically. And my response is, well, how often are you having strategic meetings? If I want people to think strategically, I want to have those types of meetings. So the reason why it's an essential element is because that rhythm is important. And in a virtual world, we have to be really deliberate and schedule these things. And what I have found is in a virtual world, it's even more important than it is just normally because we have to make this happen. Does this make sense?
0: Absolutely. So we've talked about a number of these elements, the the 12 elements, like there's a North Star, emotional safety, rewarding honesty, consistent communication business rhythm. Uh, What are some of the other things that you think people should be focusing on to create consistently high achievement?
1: I'll give you a big one. And as soon as I say it, people go, well, that's pretty simple. And I'm going to show you how it's a big problem. And that is distinguishing notice from imagine. And notice from imagine is basically just kind of um, to. Cut it short, is basically the difference between fact and opinion. So I imagine a lot of engineers out there are saying, well, wait a minute, I, I can tell the difference. And I've done work again with scientists, engineers, and technical folks, but it's so easy to slip into imagination and think it's a fact. And so an example would be that person doesn't care. That's an opinion. The truth is they didn't respond to our email. We imagine they don't care. Or how about this? Nothing moved forward when I shared my opinion, something we talked about earlier. Well, that may be true, but maybe there's a reason why. Maybe it is being worked on. Um, maybe it needs to get finessed. And sometimes people forget. But here's the thing. What happens is, when I can look at the most complicated problems, and the first step is to break it down between what we notice and what we imagine. But most people share their opinions as if it's a fact. So distinguishing that. And then in this section, there's a way, and I prove to people, um, uh, that Um, And actually, people come away with this, that most of what we think about on a daily basis is incorrect. Most of it's wrong. People go, no, no, I'm right. Well, our mind suffers from confirmation bias. Whenever we have a bias, we see what we want to see. So here's an example that translates in the technical world. How often has someone participated or seen when we've launched a product or service that we thought or somebody thought was going to be a good idea and it landed flat? And then you do the debrief and you realize there were facts that we just didn't see or people shared and ignored. All of that is a result of that distinguishing between notice versus imagine and having that clarity and working through that. So there's a client of mine, for example, they were, having, um, they were working with their customer and we brought them all in to work together as a team. And they had been plagued by a technical issue for a year. And then what they did is they broke it out on a, you know, what do we notice that's a fact and what do we imagine? And they did it in a visual way. And when it was out out, and they could see it, they suddenly realized what the problem was and then they fixed it. So it was fixed within an hour. Something had been plagued by a year. Now, why did that? Because they really got clarity what the actual issue is.
0: That makes sense. So I, I, I'm kind of like, I, I don't know if we'll get all the way through the 12, but I'm, I'm like fascinated. So we, we've we've had, uh, I think, like five of them. What what are some of the other things that you think are important for the high levels of achievement?
1: So here's another big one, uh, be them. Be them is the idea that we can get out from our world into someone else's world and really understand what other people are going through. Be them doesn't mean rapport or connection. It's way beyond that. It's the ability that we can not only get over in somebody else's shoes, but we can, we, this is the way I, I the test I give people. When they say, oh, I understand them. I say, well, could you play them in a movie? In other words, if you were cat, could you, do you know what motivates them? What worries them? And so here's the big thing that I found. A, a lot of, often people are afraid to be them, to really get out in their world because they disagree with them. And I say, be them doesn't mean agree with them, but it is our ability. Like, think about it. If we're uh, designing a technical solution, if we're coming out with something, we have to really get out from our world into other people's world and really get where they're coming from. So our ability to be others and translate and get in that is really critical. There's eight drivers of human emotion. And if people, we probably don't have time to get into that, but if people want that, we'll send that to them. But they got to mention your name. And we'll give them the eight drivers of human behavior. But essentially what it is, is to think, realize what motivates us isn't always what motivates other people. Some people are really motivated by their image or their ego, although they don't want to admit it. Others are motivated by making a difference. And some are motivated by all of that and relationships and whatnot. So anyway, the concept and idea of being with being another, right? Be them, as I call it, um, I'll give you another favorite of mine, and this is the big one we've been really helping out a lot of organizations. It's especially important when it comes to retention and all these other issues that are plaguing us, is the idea is come from anything as possible. Come from anything as possible is the idea that we can look at a situation and be innovative and look at it differently. So an example and how it relates to retention and, and recruitment. I was working with a client of mine and um, they they have, I don't know, it was 300 positions they needed to fill. And based on the way things were going, they're not going to get there. And they're like, oh, we'll just have to deal with it and we'll try to make it better. I say, you don't need this. You need a breakthrough. So the concept of being innovative daily in our job is the ability to say, okay, hold on, let's put this aside and let's come from anything as possible. So what's the response? Whenever you people say that, people say, well, that's not possible. But here's, there's nine barriers to innovation, but, but but one of the things, to a key way to think about this when it comes to that is when somebody says it's not possible, how do you know it's not possible? All we can ever say in life is I've never seen it be done, but it doesn't mean it can't be done. Nelson Mandela had a great quote that went something like, everybody thinks something's not uh, possible until it becomes possible. In other words, somebody does it. So who's to say like I like to um, work with executives and say who's to say that you uh, can't uh, um, double your revenue well it's never been done we've had 10 20 percent growth but what if you could so the question as I love to use is what if what if we could do this so here's how it deals with retention um, I said to a client of mine why not create a tiger you know group a, a group design I said why don't you look at and create it this way um, what would it take so we would never, have a recruitment problem again? Never. Now, people say, but that's impossible. Everybody has it. But what if? And so there's many things when you think about it. We'd have to have a company that everybody was constantly sending us resumes, great resumes, great contact, because everybody wants to work for us. So how do we create that environment? What kind of culture would we need to set? So it, it makes retention issue and suddenly a culture issue a producing results issue and see how it expands the way we look at it so um technical folks can really get this because when we create innovative solutions it's best to come from anything as possible so two great techniques here use the what if question what if we could like i don't like benchmarking because benchmarking only can make us equivalent right or how about this one best case you'll be average pardon me exactly (laughs) Best case
0: with benchmarking you'll be average yeah
1: and people don't realize it. They're like, let's say industry standards. I'm like, okay, well, thanks for sharing. But that's not going to create innovation. Elon Musk, and, and whether people like him or not, I mean, we look at Steve Jobs and Elon Musk, doubtful that they ever say, well, let's look at, let's benchmark. They're like, forget this. What if we did this? I had dinner last night with one of the most innovative uh, uh, friends of mine, and he's uh, started many products and he's working on now things coming out with the brain and really helping with mental illness and whatever. And I asked him, what is the most important thing when it comes to innovation? And he said, the ability to have a big vision, to think huge. And what we talked about, how very often people want to know how something can be done before they commit to what needs to be done. But really, we want to create that grand vision. How ideally would it work? And then say, okay, what would need to happen? How do we make this happen? Not whether we could make this happen. So when it comes to innovation and looking at this and
0: teamwork, it's really important to come from anything as possible i 'm going to dig back in because I know we 've not necessarily got through all the twelve elements, but i I really love when you 're talking about be them and yeah i 've heard it sometimes called cognitive empathy as opposed to you know emotional empathy is you feel bad because they feel bad Cognitive empathy is you understand why they feel bad and can decide you know how to choose your engagement in a way to 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 get an outcome in that in that interaction and I know you mentioned because I think one of the challenges is it 's the old you know do to others as you'd like to be done to you is not necessarily great advice because yeah. they might not like it so much. So let's, if we could just take a little bit of the last few minutes, eight drivers of human behavior. You talked about like image making a difference. What, what, do you, what, How do you characterize the the key drivers of human behavior?
1: Well, first of all, you make a brilliant point. And, and, and that's because we, you know, the old golden, you know, treat others the way, right. Not everybody wants to be treated the same way. Treat them the way you want they want to be treated within a respectable way. I mean, somebody say, well, I want all this. Okay, well then. um, But but so the eight drivers is designed to really help us think through this. So I'll go, let me go through them real quick. Um, so first one is love. Love is a major driver, our passion. So the number one thing to remember when retention is this: people don't leave jobs they love. So, what would make someone love their job? And people might say, good question. Well, as a leader, wouldn't we want to ask people that report to us? What don't we want to do this? So I have a client right now where what they, I coach them to do is ask their workforce on a scale from one to 10, 10 is you love your job. One is you don't. Where would you place it on the continuum? And what would it take to make it a 10? What would it take to make it a 10? Because people will not leave a job that they love. And so what makes people love their job, you know, relationship with their boss, passion, you know, uh, excuse me, vision, a lot of other uh, things, but it's different for different folks. But love is a big driver. Another big driver is security. Um, A lot of reasons why people um, uh, uh, resist change is because they're worried what's going to happen with their job. They're worried about changes because sometimes that's negatively impacted. So, of course, they're going to be protective about their territory. And so security is an issue. Another big driver is independence. And I'm sure a lot of the engineers out there can really appreciate it. You know, tell me what needs to get done and let me figure out how to get it done. Give me the freedom, right? Where some people, well, I've always, this is what I love to tease people. I said, nobody's ever said, you know, I wasn't very good at my job, but once I had a micromanager, <laughs> they it got made way me better. Really it's never that way, right? So independence is a big driver. Another one is image, right? We talked about earlier, appealing to people's ego. Ego is important. We want to know. We take pride in our work. So it's along these drivers along the way that we, I mean, I can finish them off, but you know, that R is relationships. So that would be another one. Our ability to connect. E stands for enjoyment. There, so I call them L surges. So E stands for enjoyment. We want to have a good time. Here's the interesting thing about a good time and it's what we're... um, um, Have you ever noticed that when you're in a good mood, you're smarter? (laughs) Think about that. When we're in a good mood, we're more innovative, we are more creative. So the new book that will be out in the fall is called Unconditional Power, but it's actually about how to have people feel powerful because when they're in a good mood, and I don't mean just happy, but powerful, they actually create more innovative and great solutions. So... Enjoyment is a big driver. And the, and the last one is significance. We want to know that we're not just creating and doing work for work's sake. It's how does it fit in the big picture? So just this morning, I was coaching a client of mine. They're saying, we need to get everybody to get um, connected to the overall mission. And I said to him, you can repeat what you've been saying, but why not ask people, why do you work here? and have other people share how they feel connected to the mission. And then I said to him, take people at the entry level and show them, actually walk them through how they have a lot to do, and they are very connected to the big picture. People want to know that their life and work counts. So significance.
0: Stephen, that's amazing. Unfortunately, we're out of time, but thanks so much for for taking the time. And you said the, the new book, Unconditional Power, will be out in the fall? absolutely yes L- looking forward to reading it Stephen. thanks so much for taking the time to share your wisdom and thank you for having me on